you have a Bible with you this morning, open it to the book of Matthew, uh, right around chapter 5. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can borrow one from us in the pocket of the pew in front of you. You can find Matthew chapter 5 on page 759 of that Bible. Uh, Today we begin to look at what many consider to be the greatest sermon ever preached. That in and of itself makes my job incredibly tough because if it's the greatest sermon ever preached, you can be concerned that this is not going to be the greatest sermon ever preached. And that particular designation is likely to not stop today. My words will never be able to match the words of Jesus here. And I don't think that there's much that I can add to it that is going to either spice it up or be more helpful or do anything that will, will be better than what Jesus has done. Shouldn't we then, if that is indeed the case, just you know, read these three chapters and call it a day? I considered it, honestly. It'd take about 20 minutes. Um, but I was, I was reminded of a friend who also reminds me relentlessly that I only work one day a week, and for a pretty short and limited time at that, so I might as well make some sort of effort at doing something today. We rightly confess that Jesus' words are better than mine. Yet at the same time, we should say that about every single scripture that we read. The word of God is nothing that I am ever going to improve upon. So why do we preach? Why do we teach? Why do we come here to read the words of the Lord, and then explain them. It's not that we are trying to improve what God has said. It's not that we're trying to to help improve it, to edit it, to make it better. But we are simply here to be sure that those words are heard as clearly as possible. The Word of God shines a light on a path for us. But every once in a while, because of culture, because of our sin, because of, of the distance that we have from the writing of the Word of God, weeds, thorns, and thistles overgrow that path. And, and the teachers and the preachers that God has given to the church are basically there to clear that path for us. And as I started to consider those things and to, to go through this Sermon on the Mount... I noticed that there was a lot of sort of preamble explaining that I was going to have to do. The sermon is incredibly famous. Whether you are in church or you're not in church, people have generally heard of the Sermon on the Mount. And what's more, they know a good number of little pithy catchphrases from the sermon, which they probably know independent of the entirety of the sermon. From the blessings of the Beatitudes, that blessed are the meek, or blessed are the peacemakers, or blessed are the merciful, to Jesus calling us to be salt and light, To when somebody asks you to go one mile with them, to go two miles. Calling of us to love our enemies. People who haven't graced the doors of a church in decades can recite from memory, maybe just a little bit of prompting the Lord's Prayer. Jesus calls for us to lay up treasures in heaven. Judge not, lest you be judged. The golden rule, whatever you would want people to do to you, do so to them. Even his words of building on the rock. These are statements that people know so well, independently of the sermon. And because they know them so well, they're ripe for confusion and misjudging. Especially things like, judge not, lest you be not judged. They end up taking on a life of their own. So, while I was ready to plunge headlong into the Beatitudes this morning, I think that we need to pull back some and try and get a right frame of reference for dealing with the sermon, for handling the sermon, for understanding what the sermon is here for. 
And we will be going kind of bit by bit through the sermon over the next couple of weeks. But this morning, I would like to prepare us for those things by asking three major questions of it and seeing what the sermon itself says about these things. The first question is probably the most important of the questions. And it might even be a question that while you have read through the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard the Sermon on the Mount many times, you might never have asked. And that is, what is the purpose of the sermon? What is the purpose of the sermon? What does Jesus intend to do by proclaiming these words to us? My family goes on vacation to Florida. Um, Because we always go to the same place in Florida, we have a pretty good local church there that we go to. That's a huge blessing, by the way, of traveling and knowing where you're going to go on a Sunday. It's hard to travel and to find good churches sometimes. And, and we found a good one, and we're, we're anonymous there. It's a big church. Um, and the pastor, I was reminded this week of something that I've heard him do almost every time I've heard him preach. That is, he'll go through a sermon, he'll get through his points and his notes, and then he will stop, and at the end, up on the screens behind him, he will put what he calls the big point, And what he does is he summarizes his sermon in sort of one sentence. And he says, this is the the point of the passage. This is the point of the sermon. This is what you need to leave with. If you don't leave with the points, if you don't leave with all of it kind of pieced together, this is what you leave with. Jesus were to do that, what sentence would he attach to the end of his sermon to summarize the whole thing? People have done this throughout the years. It's important when we come to it to have a frame of reference into what we're reading and how we're supposed to interpret it depends a lot on what we think we're supposed to get out of it. Martin Luther, who held so tightly to the idea that we are justified by faith alone, ran into something of a problem when he came to the sermon because the sermon is filled with things that Jesus says we have to do. His answer for that is to say, well, yes, he's telling us that we have to do these things. We have to love our enemies We have to be pure in heart. We have to do things that we can never reach so that not reaching those things, we can be reminded that we need his grace and we need his mercy. I don't mind that. I mean, certainly as we go through here, there are going to be lofty things that you and I are going to fail on and we're going to fail on until the day we reach the grave. And it is good in those times to be reminded that you can throw yourself back upon the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And it's right to preach the law that way. It's right to go to the law and to demonstrate to people that they do indeed fall short. But when we do that, we're almost always backing that up with the good news of mercy and grace. We're almost always saying, now, you've fallen here, you failed here, but the good news is Jesus Christ has done that for you. But if we understand what Luther's point is about the sermon, we actually don't get much of that, if any of that, from Jesus in this sermon. We know that the gospel, the good news, has to first be front-loaded with bad news. Forgiveness means nothing if you don't think that you need to be forgiven for something. So we oftentimes talk about the bad news. But what we have here from Jesus, if, if you understand it the way Luther did, is nothing but bad news. It's just things you can't do that he is calling you to do and you can't do. Hosea 6.1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us, and he has struck us down, and he will bind us up. What we have in the Sermon on the Mount, according to Luther's reading, is a lot of tearing and a lot of striking and very little healing and very little binding. 
It's probably not the best way, I think, to read the sermon. But Luther is reacting against people who at the same time would look at the sermon and would say, what Jesus is giving us here are entrance requirements for the kingdom of God. Part of this is based on Matthew 5.20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They say this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Regardless of what Paul says, we might have to reinterpret Paul. Some of them would just say Paul was wrong. But, but what we need to do is we need to understand that what Jesus is giving us here are things that you need to be in order to be in the kingdom of God. In order to be saved, you need to follow these ideas. You need to strive for them and you need to reach some of them. I obviously don't think that that is what Paul or what Jesus is doing and I certainly don't think that's what Paul is doing. Calvin in the Reformed tradition kind of looked at this as though it's a law. They eventually started to call this the law of Christ. These are things that, that are good uses of the law, good ways to understand that we are to walk in righteousness and holiness in our time. And I think that that comes closest to the right view, but I do have a problem with their use of the word law here. Because when you start talking about this as the law, even the law of Christ, the law is always in terms of what is right and what is wrong. You either keep it or you don't keep it. And I don't think that that's the right frame of reference to understand what Jesus is getting at here. It's not really inherently about what people do but who people are. To give you a picture of what this means, what we need to do is understand that this, I believe, is Matthew's unpacking of what he has just summarized. So in 4.17 and in 4.23, he has summarized Jesus' preaching as this. In 4.17, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And in 4.23, that he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Jesus' preaching focused on the nature of the kingdom. It focused on what the kingdom was. And for us, citizenship is really just a legal matter, right? If you were born here, you're a citizen of this country. If you had parents who were Canadian who were on vacation here and you were born while they were on vacation, guess what? You are a citizen of the U.S., even if they had no intention of doing that. If you're born here, regardless of circumstances, if you're born in an embassy overseas, you're a citizen of the United States. It's a legal matter. You don't have to have patriotic things. You don't have to think patriotic. You can be more patriotic or less patriotic, but legally, you're a citizen. And that's typically how we regard that. Now, that's not how citizenship was thought of really fully in the ancient world. The Greeks especially were like this, and to a lesser extent, the Jews and the Romans but to be a citizen of Athens was to walk and to speak and to have the values of an Athenian. You strove to be what Athenians all strove to be. The same would be true of Spartans, and the same would be true of those who are in Troy. It's a little bit different for Jews, but you can see the same sort of pattern set up in Judaism at this time. If you were a tax collector, you were still a Jew, Legally, you were a Jew. Your dad was Jewish. Your mom was Jewish. You, you, you can't undo the genealogy. You can't undo your heritage. But if you were a tax collector, you wouldn't truly be considered a Jew. You were outside the bounds of Judaism. Your father is most apt to look at you and say, I, I don't have a son. You're not a part of our family. You're not a part of our heritage, and you're not a part of our nation. 
There were a number of sins that were like that. This is why we have those sort of collections of sinners, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. So what Jesus is doing is giving people that kind of an idea, a vision, a goal, a way of being in the world that is precisely what citizens in the kingdom of heaven ought to be. This is what you ought to strive for. These are the kinds of people that you need to be if you are going to live as people in the kingdom of heaven. This would have been incredibly important to them. Again, what I think Jesus is doing is showing up and telling them that to repent for the kingdom of God is here is to say that war is coming and you need to to turn your back on the place where you live. You need to turn your back on Rome and you need to turn your back on the culture that you're in and embrace the values and the cultures of the kingdom and what he's preaching are just those values and just those ideals. Notice this isn't how to get in. I think that getting in is kind of wrapped up in that idea of repentance. Jesus isn't preaching about how to get in, but he's preaching about what your life ought to look like as you live it once you're in. In saying this, Jesus would necessarily confuse some people and alienate others because there's no doubt that the kingdom of heaven was so strongly associated with the Jewish nation that to think that the Jewish leadership, the Jews in general, had to repent and turn in order to embrace new values and a new culture would have been almost unthinkable to them. This is one of the reasons why at the end of the sermon, people are astonished at what he says because he teaches like he's got the authority to tell people that they need to change. That's not how the scribes preached. That's not what the Pharisees did. The reason why people can't keep living that way is because of the very things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, which brings us to our second question. What are the themes of the sermon? What are the themes of the sermon? I'm going to point out three of them. Uh, The fourth one is kind of coming next week, and that is joy and happiness is one of the themes of the sermon. We'll get to that next week, but I, I just want to point out three others this morning. Probably the most important theme about the Sermon on the Mount is something that is really hard to relate. It's, it's about wholeness. It's about completeness. It's about consistency. The best way to see this as a theme in the Sermon on the Mount is to look at sort of the foil for that, which is Jesus talking about the hypocrites in chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 2, Jesus says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do. In verse 5, he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. In verse 16, in that same chapter, he says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. Now, it's important to know that hypocrites are not exactly for Jesus the same kind of hypocrites that we think of. When we think of hypocrites, typically, we think of people who say one thing and do another. It's the kind of, you go into the doctor if you're a smoker, And he says, friend, you know, lung cancer is a knock and you're going to have to quit smoking. It's really bad for you. And then he leaves and goes out on a five-minute smoke break, right? That is what we think is hypocrisy. You you say that we shouldn't do this, but you do it yourself. We, We know that people are hypocrites who are politicians or pastors who are so set on proclaiming the goodness of morals but live absolutely sinister lives behind that. We call them hypocrites. They don't do what they say. But that is not quite what Jesus means, although it's similar when he talks about hypocrites. 
A hypocrite isn't somebody who says one thing and does another. The hypocrite's a theater term. It's somebody who's just putting on a show. It's someone who is playing. They would tell you that giving alms, and they would tell you that praying, and they would tell you that fasting is important, and they would do those things. So by our kind of definition of hypocrites, they're not actually hypocrites. But what Jesus means is this. The point of their actions isn't the action themselves. The point of their fasting isn't to fast. And the point of their praying isn't to speak to God. The point of giving alms is not actually to help the poor. They're performing for people because they want a response from others. They, they, want, they want fame or they want applause. They want glory from the crowds. They are different in their motivations than in what they do. This isn't just seen in the hypocrites of chapter 6, but in all of the you have heard it said, but I say to you in chapter 5. All of it is sort of building up. Chapter 5 is giving us the positive reinforcement of how we ought to be consistent. When it comes to murder, it's not actually that you can just say, I, I can have all the hatred that I want to inside as long as it doesn't make it to my outside. I can pretend not to hate people because I don't murder. Jesus says, no, the inward disposition matters just as much. It's not just sexual immorality. It's not just not committing adultery. But you ought to be the kind of person who doesn't want to do those things. You can't just be the type of person who doesn't do them. You have to be the kind of person who doesn't want to do them. And that makes a huge, huge difference. Coming off of Easter, as folks are like when I was a kid, you'd get that big chocolate bunny and you'd bite into it like you're Ozzy Osbourne with a bat, take the head right off, and you would realize that inside it's empty, right? It's just empty. And you're thinking, I got five pounds of chocolate here. This is going to make me, this is going to last until August, right? And, and a day later, it's gone because it was just really thin and, and I overate as a child. So they're empty. What, what they have on the outside is not what is going on on the inside. And what Jesus is telling you is that that cannot be the case with you. The height of all of this is verse 48 of chapter 5, where he makes a transition between the positive examples of what you ought to do to the negative examples of what you shouldn't do, like the hypocrites, when he says, you must therefore be perfect. That word perfect is bad for a number of reasons. It means you must be complete. Just like your heavenly Father is complete, who never acts outside of his character. He's never putting on a show for people. But what he does flows from the very heart of who he is. That should be exactly how you are as well. You are to be whole and you are to be complete. I think that this is actually what Matthew 5.20 means when it says your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Their righteousness was just external. It was just for show. Jesus says you have to have actual righteousness. You have to have a heart that longs and beats for the Lord to do what he says and to want and to desire what is the right way and the good path. The second theme that you get when you go through the Sermon on the Mount is this inversion of worldly values. It's quite clear that the values that Jesus is placing forward are not the values of the world in which he walks, and I think quite clear that they are not the values of the world in which we walk. Part of this is wrapped up in the, the picture of hypocrites above, that we are prone to just look at the outward person. We're prone to just look at the effects of what people do instead of looking at the heart they do it in because, frankly, we can't see their heart. 
but it's also caught up just in the pureness of what Jesus says. Love your enemies. The world doesn't love its enemies. Whether it's physically seeking their end in war and in genocide, or whether it's ideologically seeking to make them look bad, to tear them down, to castigate them, to make sure that they are marginalized and isolated. The world doesn't love enemies. So much of the Sermon on the Mount is given to this kind of thing. You're to be mournful over the things that you see in the world and not rejoicing over them. You are to be poor in spirit, not cocksure and confident. You are ready to be persecuted, not complaining about it. You are always giving and forgiving, treating people according to how you want to be treated, not according to their station in life. So if they are socially below you, you don't treat them as less than you, but you uphold them as equal to you. You seek to be right yourself before you seek to fix other people. These values do not sit well in the world, and Jesus is radically inverting the values of the world to say that the values, that the things the kingdom loves, the thing the kingdom's, kingdom is built off of, the kinds of people that will inhabit the kingdom are not the kind of people who have the values of the world. And lastly, one of the big themes of the Sermon on the Mount is an incredible and radical trust in God. The citizens of the kingdom must have this sort of radical trust in God in order to carry out anything that's going on here. You have to have this sort of radical trust in God. The people of the kingdom should faithfully undergo persecution because they trust God. They should forsake the repayment of good done on this earth because they trust that God will make it right. They will show immense mercy because they trust that God will provide for their needs. They will work in the shadows because they trust that God will reward. They will not be anxious and lack because they know that and trust that God will provide. They build their lives on his word because they trust him. This is what the citizens of the kingdom look like. And it is indeed an ideal that we should pursue. It is neither impossible to pursue, nor is it an entrance requirement, nor is it something that you either do or you don't do. It is a growth that you are presenting in your character to walk faithfully before the Lord. You're not acting apart, but you're joyfully pursuing completeness. You're not letting the world define your values, but you're letting the Lord Jesus define them for you, and you radically trust God. This is the nature of the people of the kingdom of God. Which brings us to the third and, I think, important point. The question, where is the gospel in the sermon? Where is the gospel? I have been told and hold to the idea that the gospel in any sermon that you preach ought to be proclaimed. Otherwise, it's not truly a, a Christian sermon. When we say that, we have a, a fairly narrow definition of what we mean when we say gospel in that kind of a setting. We mean the proclamation of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf. That your sins require a death from you. Jesus took on that penalty. He took on those wages. He took on all that was coming to you 
took it fully to the grave and triumphed over it in his resurrection, showing both that you are freed and justified from those sins and that death no longer has any hold over you because he himself has defeated it. And the call then to trust in that with your life. We're not just reviewing that. That is something to actually be put forward before you this morning. That if you feel the weight and the gravity of your sin, there is but one remedy for that weight and gravity. There is one person and one thing that will take that off of you, and that is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no hope for anyone in this room outside of that hope. That is the gospel. And there is nothing that you have done in your life There is no sin that is greater than the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is that great. It's not that your sin is that minimal. Your sin is deeper than you can believe, but he's better than you can imagine. Forgiveness is there in that. But saying that, where do we find any of that in the gospel? Here, any of that particular gospel, I should say, here in the sermon. Perhaps we should assume then that that Jesus is, is proclaiming a sermon, but isn't, isn't really proclaiming the gospel. The gospel can't really be proclaimed yet because Jesus hasn't died, been buried, and been resurrected. But the major problem with that is that Matthew wrote this book after Jesus was dead, buried, and resurrected. And Matthew, as the authoritative evangelist for the Lord Jesus Christ, has proclaimed what he says here as gospel. Remember, he is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. How can we consider this good news? I mean, at one level, as you read through this, there's a bunch of stuff in here that's not good news for you. Loving your enemies is incredibly hard. Honestly and truly loving them, not just Not just doing good for them, but seeking their good. Loving them, truly wanting what is is good for them. That is immensely hard. Mercy is immensely hard. It is hard to continue to give mercy to people who throw it away. Leaving anxiety and fear behind is extremely difficult. Jesus stands on the mount and proclaims to people who are poor, who who worry about their provisions over the course of the winter, who might not know where their next meal is coming from, that you are not to be concerned about that. Those are hard words. I'm sometimes concerned about where my next meal is coming from, and I have no lack. I don't know what it is like for every single day to be wondering is, is today a day that we're going to go hungry? Frankly, Jesus just helpfully tells us this is hard. In 714, he says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and there are few who find it. But even if it's hard, it's still meant to be good news. This is one of the reasons why Jesus begins this entire sermon with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not not blessings so much, but they are, are pictures of what it means to truly be joyful and happy in the world. Joyful or happy 
are those who are poor in spirit. Joyful and happy are those who mourn. Jesus is not just giving you a hard way, even though it might be hard. It is a hard way that is filled with joy and happiness, filled with flourishing in the world. He is giving you a way that you can live free from the the worries and concerns of fitting into the the desires of the world around you, of, of working hard to gain applause from people who can turn on you in an instant of worrying about where you're going to be provided for and how you can, you can live for another day. He is giving you a path that is free from that as you trust in God. And after all, when we talk about the gospel, what is the gospel really? We need to be very clear about this. And it's a small thing, I think, but it's, it's terribly important. We are not simply to trust in an act in history. We don't just trust that Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and resurrected. That's not actually what we're trusting in. The good news is not something. The good news is someone. We do trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but we do it because we trust in Jesus. And because we put our hope in him, because we put our trust in him, that means that we ought to follow him. If we have faith in him, if we trust him, that means we trust not just what he does, but we trust what he teaches as well. We trust that Jesus doesn't just die for our sins, but leads us in life. He guides us and directs us. He will forgive us and remake us. And it's important because as you go through the sermon, not everything you hear will strike you as particularly difficult. There are plenty of people in here who are going to hear about anger. And I know you. And you're going to say, that's, that's not something I, I, I really truly struggle with. For some of you, that's true. Some of you are going to hear about lust, and because of the, your, your station in life or because of your makeup, you're going to say, that, that honestly is just not something I, I terribly struggle with. I'm going to talk about oaths. For some of you, your yes is your yes, and it is unshakable, and your no is your no, and it is unmovable. And you you do this sort of naturally, and it's not a struggle for you. But for some of you who do not have struggles with anger, you do fret. You do have much anxiety. For those of you who might not struggle with lust, you might also then struggle giving mercy to those who do. For those of you who have very sure yeses, you might be very quick to judge those who are unwilling to do the same. There are plenty of things that you have in this sermon that are going to hit you hard. And when that happens, you really have a couple of options. You can say, listen, what Jesus is asking me for must not be what he's asking me for. I'm going to tell you in a number of situations and a number of circumstances we read through here, it is exactly what he's asking you for. You're going to be tempted to say, I can't do that. What he's asking is impossible for me. Or worse yet, I won't do that. But you are to trust Jesus. Not just as a Lord who commands this over you. Although he's at least that. This is why I think Matthew front loads 
the miracles before he gets to the teaching. So in 4.23, he proclaims that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and then he turns immediately to these miracles. By the time we get to the Sermon on the Mount, we realize that the crowds have come to him because of those miracles. But when Jesus speaks, he is not speaking just from a position of authority, but he's speaking from a position of compassion and love and mercy. He's not just a Lord commanding you. He's a friend helping you. He's a Savior leading you. The one who is good enough to know his death will pay for your sins is wise enough to know the paths that lead to righteousness and joy and happiness in this life. This is the gospel. Because to live the way the people of the kingdom ought to live, you absolutely have to trust Jesus. This is a calling to lose yourself, to lose the things of this world, and to trust that Jesus is right and true in what he says. I mean, the good news is simply this, that God's kingdom is a kingdom where mercy is wide and grace is deep, where anyone and everyone will flourish like the lilies of the field, where righteousness can indeed reign over all things, and the only way to know it the only way to experience it, the only way to live it out, the only way to enter into it is by trusting in the words and in the deeds of Jesus of Nazareth. As he says, go and therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let us pray. Father, give us faith to see the good that Jesus calls us to here. Give us hearts that long to be these kinds of people and wills forged by that same faith to make it so. When we fail, and our God, we admit faithfully and honestly that we will fail. Give us grace and mercy. Show us the right path and establish us in the right way. May our lives glorify the Lord that we might know and experience the good you have in store for us. We ask this in the holy and wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.